This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Jolly, bringing you the best of my Times Radio show. You can listen live to Politics Up, the Boring Bits, Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times Radio app. Coming up on today's episode, our tour of Britain continues. We went to Bournemouth for the Lib Dems, we went to Manchester for the Tories, Liverpool for the Labour Party, and now we're at lovely Cheltenham, the Times and Sunday Times Cheltenham Literature Festival, with a very special live debate in front of an audience of or several hundred people. Well, we're asking, what year is it? So here it is. Welcome to the Times Radio Debate, here with a live audience at the Cheltenham Literature Festival. I'm Matt Chorley. And because we're now probably only a year away from the next general election, we've brought together some of the biggest electoral brains in the country to try to find out what we can learn from the politics of the past and find out which election in history 2024 could most closely resemble. Will it be a 1997-style landslide? Could the Tories pull off a surprise like John Major in 1992? Or could it be, and this is my favourite, at such a tight result that we have two elections, like we did in 1974? <laughs> uh, it probably won't exactly resemble any of those, but we're going to have fun finding out uh, and learning uh, from history. So... Joining me on stage here at the Forum at the Cheltenham Literature Festival, Aisha Hazarika, Times Radio presenter. Uh, she also used to be an advisor to Ed Miliband. Hello, but uh, I know you hate me reminding you of that. Hello, Aisha. Uh, Hello. We, we've also got Patrick McGuire, Times Radio senior political correspondent, uh, who also writes an excellent column in the Times every Friday. Lara Spirit, the Times Red Box editor. I know you're all Times subscribers, you'll, you'll be getting her Red Box newsletter in your inbox every morning. And the man that everyone turns to whenever the word election is even mentioned. The sophologist, sophologist, <laughs> Professor John Curtis of the University of Strathclyde. Welcome to the panel. <laughs> so, uh, let's take a trip down memory lane. This is Aisha's choice uh, as we kick off uh, with a uh, look back at previous elections and what they might tell us about the future. Here's a little clue. I mean, we have been through a big process of change and modernisation of the Labour Party. That is absolutely true. But it's been a process of change that I think has been well worth undertaking. 
Either I'll be back in Downing Street or we'll have a Labour government. Does that matter? Yes, it does. There it is, 10 o'clock, and we say Tony Blair is to be Prime Minister and a landslide is likely. So, Aisha, are we heading for a 1997-style Labour landslide? So, I am slightly twisting the question, but I think we are in 1997 territory. I don't think it's necessarily going to be a landslide. John just laughed. I know, I know, I know. Slightly, that slightly done me in right from the start. And the god of politics just ridicules you right from the start. John, just go with me. Before you tell me apart, just go with me. So, I think there will be a Labour victory. I think it will be a majority. But this is why I think we're in that kind of zone. That sort of, the, the things, the kind of similarities. First of all, I think the level of unpopularity towards the Tories feels very similar now as it did in the run-up to 1997. Many of you, I'm looking at the old, many of you will remember the 90s very, very well. Don't mean to be rude. Maybe the 1890s. <laughs> oh, sorry. Oh, sorry, don't, don't like, lose the audience here. <laughs> but, you know, there was that feeling, wasn't there? There was that feeling that, you know, people really, really wanted to change. I think we're very much um, feeling that now. I concede that uh, Tony Blair was an exceptional performer. I don't think Keir Starmer is quite... If, if Tony Blair was a rock star, Keir Starmer's more a sort of folk star kind of thing. <laughs> Although, to be fair to him, he, has doing, he is doing the job that John Smith, Neil Kinnock and Tony Blair did. He's kind of do, trying to do that in one cr- truncated thing. The other thing, you've got the mini-budget, which I think is very akin to Black Wednesday, which really... The Liz really, Trust one yeah, last the year. The Liz yeah. Trust one, which I think had a big kind of hangover in terms of... Even though the economy actually started to grow under the Tories, the Tories never quite won back trust terms of, in terms of the economy after that. I think there was that feeling of, of a real lack of trust in politics, particularly around sleaze. Yep. You know, there was all of this kind of stuff from, uh, you know, cash for questions. You had Neil Hamilton. You had the Jonathan Aiken stuff. Even the David Mellor thing, you know, with the Chelsea shirt and his mistress at the time, that's a memory no one. Did explain, Aisha? Yes. He was wearing a... Was he wearing a Chelsea... No, he wasn't. I think it was a Max Clifford fabric. Yes, it was, was a, yeah. Up. But I mean, there was, a, there, was, there was kind of sex and sleaze scandals. And while individually each one... There wasn't one single one that brought down the government. It felt like the accumulative weight... Yeah, well, it's because, because, because John Major was saying back to basics. Exactly. Yeah. But then actually, of course, we eventually discovered that he himself was in a relationship with a rather famous lady who wasn't... His wife. Popping yeah. <laughs> out for a curry, uh, yes. <laughs> Which I should say, for the purposes of clarification, nobody has accused Rishi Sunak of. <laughs> He's definitely not having an affair with Edwina Curry. I think we could absolutely categorically <laughs> rule that out. But look, so that's why I do. Th- the other thing which I think was interesting, which is then and now, then as well, you saw the rise of the kind of non political, kind of anti sleaze, anti traditional politics. Campaigner, like remember Martin Bell, the former BBC war correspondent. I think you're seeing the rise of those campaigners. They're much maligned, but you know, the Gary Linekers, the Carol Vordermans, who have lots of kind of influence, uh, particularly on social media. So that's Carol why. Carol Vordermans are new Martin Bell. Maybe. She does like a white dress. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> she slightly wears a better than Martin Bell would. But anyway, um, so that's why I think, I'm not saying it's going to be exactly the same, but I think the conditions are aligned are similar. But, there, but, but there is clearly one obvious difference, right? There is no way that the Labour Party are going to be able to use Tony Blair's song this time around. No. Because, because the honest truth was, you know, Black Wednesday, although it was politically disastrous for the Conservatives, was arguably brilliant for the economy, and we certainly began to embark on what was proved to be the best period 
of economic growth in Britain's post-war history. So by the time it got to 1997, although the Labour Party was being extremely careful about what money might spend, yep. and exactly the same way as saying now, the truth is the fiscal position was relatively fine and the economy was certainly fine. As Keir Starmer was being very honest with the electorate earlier this week, that is not going to be true after the next general election, not least, of course, because most of the public expenditure cuts that are required to meet Jeremy Hunt's rule, whereby he just about, in the last OBR report, met his rule five years down the track, and, of course, five years never happens, um, uh, is, is, is the, uh, they're, they're all scheduled for after the election. So the fiscal position that a, any new government, whether it's the Conservatives again, or Labour Party no, is going I, to be much, much tighter. And I totally, totally accept that. I absolutely accept that. And you're right. The song will not be Things Can Only Get Better. The song will probably I, I be Heaven Knows that. I'm Miserable Now by Morrissey. That's actually <laughs> like where things are going to go. It's one thing saying, look, we're not going to be able to do everything that we want. But to not be able to say things can only get better is such a... You know, vote for me and things might get worse. Seems like quite a tough sell for Keir Starmer. <laughs> well, it, well, it is. And the, but they are actually... I think last week's Labour conference, or rather this week's Labour conference, it's been a very long week for those of us <laughs> from Manchester to Liverpool to Cheltenham. Great place to finish, though. Um, the different, what Labour are now trying to do is move away from the very fatalistic, gloomy language they were speaking in before their conference. Every time, uh, you know, uh, Laura Koonsberg would say, um, will you buy the country... Will you buy the country a puppy, Keir Starmer? Keir Starmer would say, absolutely not. Under no circumstances are we going to do nice things. They make a conscious attempt to move beyond that gloomy rhetoric. But really, the bedrock of their entire economic and political thinking now is the world is a very insecure and scary place with climate change and volatile geopolitics. You know, they, they, the, the very thinking there, whole worldview is predicated on, means you can't really say things are going to get better. All they can say is things could get worse, but we are the party that respects you and acknowledges the challenges and will try and protect us uh, from the storm we're riding through. The other thing, Lara, is that the, Lara Spirit, is that the, the maths is just different. The, in order, the, the, the number of seats that the Labour Party needs to win at the next election... Uh, they basically need to make the same gains that Tony Blair did, only to get a majority of one, because they're so far behind. Yeah, and I think that's one of the uh, key differences with 92, which I will anyway be uh, defending. But it is interesting that, um, given Labour look like they're making such significant recovery in Scotland, that is shifting the recovery slightly towards it seeming like, actually, the distance they do have to go in order to win a majority might just be slightly smaller. Excellent. So Aisha's made the case in 97, and we've all trashed it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I just make one other quick point. I think the other thing that happened in 97 that I think we may see at the next election is some big Tory beast losing their seats, yeah. which will be, you know... The, you know, that was very, like, Michael Portillo oh, yeah. losing his seat. I think there will be, you know, a few of those moments. Michael Gove is currently very active on his Instagram. <laughs> He's doing a lot of sewage, in sewage workshops yes, exactly. within the day. Oh, yeah, I mean, I mean, remember the, the, the title of the book after the election was Were You Up For Portillo? Yeah. Right? And that was the moment when Michael Portillo lost his seat. That was the moment that everybody realised that the Conservatives really were yeah, being yeah. crucified. Can I, can I just leave you very quickly and say, John, you might dispute this as someone who knows much more about electoral everything than me. <laughs> it wasn't in 97 there was an emergence of a, a, an awareness among voters that, if, that, that they could back the Liberal Democrats in seats where Labour had no chance of winning and no. maximising the anti-Tory vote. And we're beginning to see the first signs of that again, aren't we? Uh, there are remarkable similarities between the patterns of 
the results in the English local elections in May and the patterns of the results in local elections prior to 1997. Yes, finally, election. one glimmer of hope. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, 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 their votes going down more heavily in the places where they were previously strongest and under our current electoral system, that's not a terribly good thing to do. And the second thing is, although it won't be on the scale that we're seeing, witnessing in parliamentary by-elections, there was clear evidence for local elections that voters in places that they think the Labour Party are more likely to win, were, there were some of the opposition voters were switching to them, and equally they were going to the Liberal Democrats um, uh, elsewhere. And that's one of the reasons why Labour's chances of getting the overall majority are perhaps somewhat better than the standard arithmetic suggests. OK, let's move on then. You, you'll get your chance to trash John now. Yes, you better watch out, John. Uh, John's... Particularly because I'm going to be much less um, optimistic for the Labour Party than you. <laughs> sure OK, this is John's pick of uh, the election we should be thinking about. Here's a little reminder. If it's about the big decisions, I'm your man. I think if we do things differently, we can be proud once again of the role we can play. If you vote Conservative, you will get a new team running the country. Yeah, I agree with uh, Nick. And, and, see, I, I agree with Nick. Despite his injuries, UKIP's Nigel Farage was helped from the wreckage. Here it is, 10 o'clock, and we are saying the Conservatives are the largest party. I aim to form a proper and full coalition between the Conservatives and the Liberal Democrats. Prime Minister, do you now regret when once asked what your favourite joke was, you replied, Nick Clegg? We're all going to have. I, I'm afraid I did oh, once. Well. I'm, I'm, uh... <laughs> so, John, 2010. Why should we be thinking about the 2010 election? Well, once I started to think about it, there are a remarkable number of similarities. Um, and of course, in my case, I'm going to start with the opinion polls. Where were the opinion polls at a year before the 2010 election? There was an 18-point lead for the opposition, very similar to the 17-point lead that the Labour opposition currently have. And yes, the opposition had been ahead in the polls for around two years, which is roughly the length of time that the Labour Party has been ahead of the polls in this parliament. So the starting point, at least, i.e. where we're at now, is remarkably similar to where we were before the 2010 election. Second, of course, similarity is that um, we had an unelected Prime Minister. Um, Gordon Brown, of course, managed to avoid there being a contest for the prize after Tony Blair decided to resign. So he was both unelected by his party and unelected by the electorate. So to that extent, at least, he shares a similarity with Rishi Sunak. Former Chancellor as well. Uh, indeed, absolutely. And then the third similarity, of course, is that Gordon Brown... <coughs> in order to try to deal with the uh, banking crisis, had to engage in unprecedented action, where, in effect, one bank was, uh, he was nationalised and another was put into a forced shotgun, uh, shotgun marriage. Um, equally, albeit before he was Prime Minister, Mr Sunak engaged in unprecedented action in terms of the government intervening in the labour market in order to save an awful lot of people's jobs. So, again, unelected uh, politicians doing remarkably radical things. And then, of course, there is the financial crisis itself. I mean, Aisha's quite rightly referred to Black Wednesday, but then it's also remember that the banking crisis was also a, a financial crisis, which, much like Liz Truss, 
The opposition at that stage managed to pin pretty successfully on the government, although we can probably argue that the case for doing so is arguably weaker than that for Liz Truss, but still, the opposition was successful. You remember, you know, the Labour Party was accused of having failed to mend the roof uh, while, the, while the sun shone. Um, so again, very, very similar difficulty for the government uh, to deal with. Um, what's also true is that prime ministerial mistakes have pl played an important role as to why Labour was behind uh, in the polls. Uh, uh, Gordon Brown's big mistake, that was basically the pivotal moment uh, when the Conservatives went ahead in the opinion polls, was uh, his failure to call an election in the autumn of 2007, having kind of everybody suggested and allowed the speculation to rise that it was going to be, and then, and, and then it didn't happen. And so, you know, it's, it's the functional equivalent, well, basically it's Boris Johnson and Liz Truss all rolled into one because it's those two mistakes that result in the system. And then finally, and then this, this is the reason why, perhaps above all, we should just remember, and I, you know, I take the conversation Patrick and I have already had. But let's just also bear in mind the Conservatives at that stage were also facing an electoral system that at that stage was working to their disadvantage. And although in the end it did indeed operate to some degree less disadvantageously than it would have done if it had simply followed the geography of 1992, in the end the Conservatives would still have needed an 11-point majority uh, a lead over Labour in 2010 to get an overall majority and in the event the seven point lead they got wasn't enough and I think it's therefore a lesson given all these similarities in the end we cannot rule out the possibility of a hung parliament we are into the uncertainties of you know, if Labour are reasonably far ahead but perhaps not so far ahead as they are now will they be able to get the majority and of course the interesting thing then is what would happen afterwards um, and here I think I would just simply say one thing. Do not necessarily presume that what the politicians tell you beforehand <laughs> will necessarily be the truth. Um, and it's worth remembering before 20, uh, 2010, David Cameron was saying that, you know, the prospect of a hung parliament would be chaotic, be an absolute disaster for the country. In the meantime, Oliver Letwin his uh, principal policy advisor, was desperately reading the Liberal Democrat manifesto. Indeed, I think most people reckoned he knew it better than the Liberal Democrats themselves. <laughs> and was getting ready... Was he was film putting in the... And, and was getting ready to negotiate. So don't presume that anything that anybody says about what might happen in the Hun Palm beforehand is necessary to be believed. And actually, Lara, you know, the, the Lib Dems, when down in Bournemouth a couple of weeks ago, you know, Ed Davey answered every single question, apart from the question of what will you do in the event of a hung parliament, would you, would you go into a, a cabinet with, with Keir Starmer? Yeah, exactly. So that was one of the key ambiguities. Although it seems to be one that actually people are quite happy to let go for a little while now, although he is unambiguously, and this is different to, you know, 92 or other elections that we'll look at, but he's unambiguously ruling out a coalition with the Conservatives, and indeed that's kind of the key difference with the Liberal Democrats now, is they've done a complete turn against the Conservatives, and when Ed Davey has asked about... But it's, but it's back to Paddy Ashdown in 1992, because Paddy Ashdown before 1992 dropped equidistance and said, we, you know, we were only uh, going below party, and of course that eventually was what Liberal Democrats were hoping to come out of the 97 election, but Labour won by so much and far more than the Labour Party ever expected that therefore none of that... But it still worked. I mean, they more than, like, doubled the number of seats in, in 97 the Lib Dems. So, so, yeah, so sure. turning their back on the Tories and sort of basically saying we're the Labour Party in places where the Labour Party aren't there matter. Across the UK, on DAB, online and on your smart speaker, this is Times Radio.
Very good afternoon to you. It's Matt Chorley coming to you live from the Cheltenham Literature Festival. Yeah. And we're sort of playing a sort of parlour game of what general election year is it going to be next year. Uh, we've already done 1997. Uh, we've done 2010. Now we turn to Lara Spit. And Lara, you're going to sort of set out for us what the two parties themselves might uh, want us to think could happen. <laughs> uh, so let's start with a reminder first of this one. United States of Europe is the right way ahead. I do believe a Europe bound together closely, a Europe of nation states bound together is the right way. But this is the Labour Party. This is the party that's going to win the election and win for our country. About half an hour ago, I learned that we had passed the magic winning post in real seats and not just in a projection. I'm deeply honoured to have been given the opportunity of continuing the work I've started in the last 16 months. I'm really disappointed we didn't include the Sheffield Rally in that. <laughs> Very triumphant. <laughs> All right. So this, this is the, the former Chancellor up against it, pulls off a shock win. That's basically what Rishi Sunak is trying to do, Laura. Yeah, so um, when you talk to Conservative MPs who are still retaining some hope that actually the current poll deficit... Uh, might be turned around. They will say that actually, if you look at 1992, uh, there is perfect evidence of uh, when you can win from a slight poll deficit uh, and come back. <laughs> Already laughing within five laughing. seconds. I love how you all um, sat very quietly during John's I know. Uh, um, <laughs> monologue. Very and then, yeah, as soon as you start talking, John starts laughing. Anyway, keep going, Lara. Um, so the case, the, case, the case for this, I think, is, is threefold. The first is that uh, you have a new-ish Conservative leader in John Major uh, who is making the case that he is very different uh, from his predecessor, who at that point is somewhat discredited, in this case, uh, Thatcher. Um, the second case on this is uh, the Labour leader, Neil Kinnock, who is like Keir Starmer and like we saw in his speech, uh, coming off the back of what people think is a very successful war with the left of his party. So basically saying, I'm going to disagree with my party, I'm going to leave those factions behind, and I'm going to put country first. So we heard that from Keir Starmer, uh, you know, country first, party second uh, this week. The third part of this is the election campaign that the, the Tories say they're going to run. And in this sense, I have to say I'm slightly more sceptical that their comparisons bear a huge amount of weight. But uh, they say, you know, we're intending to run a presidential campaign just like in 1992. So, you know, John's laughing, <laughs> <again>. laughing again. <laughs> Listeners, John's laughing. Um, and in this instance, you know, they say Rishi Sunak is more personally popular uh, sometimes in the party, that actually uh, if we make it all about him uh, and all about him making difficult decisions, and indeed I watch back the uh, John Major, the film that they made about him, at the, you know, yeah. at hundreds of thousands of pounds of expense to show him going through Brixton and talking about getting inflation down. Well, it's on Conservative yeah. Home, have it online. Yeah, yeah. indeed. Um, well, I mean, that's what he says, isn't it? I mean, he's going along in the car. And he's, uh, oh, and he looks at like, yes. it's, it's still there. And yeah. this is like an Edwardian block, so <laughs> yeah. it would have been unusual if, if it wasn't. If it wasn't, yeah. <laughs> um, and I think one of the problems, obviously, uh, with this, indeed perfectly illustrated by John Major driving through Brixton, is that uh, Rishi Sunak's personal popularity, for those <laughs> who have read The Times today, yeah. is at its lowest. He could fly over Silicon Valley. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think that's one of the, uh, the, the problems with this presidential election oh. idea now, which actually some you know, within the Conservative Party or allies of Rishi Sunak are starting to admit that actually running a presidential campaign uh, might not be so easy. You know, part of the John Major appeal 
in that election was him standing famously on the soapbox, him uh, feeling like he could relate successfully to everybody. Uh, indeed, we wrote this morning in Redbox, he was on the Cheltenham soapbox just a few days after his first appearance uh, in Lucent. I think very hard to imagine Rishi Sunak doing the same. And he hosts those PM Connect events where he goes and uh, speaks to people. And, uh, you know, I met someone uh, who had been with him at one of those events uh, recently who said, I've just, my, my takeaway from that was that I've never met someone where it's so obvious that he hasn't managed normal people before in his life. And that, that's what it was like watching him meet all the, all the all people the that are working people. here. So uh, I think that's going to be a key difficulty for the Tories in trying to translate Rishi Sunak into a majority. Uh, of course, the reason that they have hope from that is that it looked like Neil Kinnock might win at the beginning of the campaign, and he didn't. But the poll deficit, as I'm sure John will say, was m- much smaller uh, than it is currently for... Uh, well, I mean, there the, the, the are two points to that. I mean, one is a point I should make before anybody else does the polls were wrong in 1992. It is not clear that there was any major change during the election campaign itself. It's just that the opinion polls were exaggerating Labour's position. And that almost... I mean, I think one thing about 1992, therefore, is an important reminder. We shouldn't necessarily assume that the 17-point average estimate in the polls is... might be exaggerating Labour's position. But there is one fundamental piece of history that does make the 1992 comparison was difficult for the Conservatives, and that is this. The change in the Conservatives' fortunes uh, between, um, uh, even according to the opinion polls, um, occurred um, uh, uh, after John Major replaced Margaret Thatcher as Prime Minister. So the Conservatives were actually ahead in the opinion polls after uh, Margaret Thatcher uh, uh, was, uh, was brought down. Um, the same has not happened in the wake of Rishi Sunak becoming <laughs> yeah, that's Prime Minister. Why and that's just a fundamental difference. Yeah. Well, let's move on then, Lara, to the election that Team Starmer have really got their eye on. Uh, here's a reminder. We shall be partners in a great adventure. We shall consult, and I mean consult, not present you with a dictator. There would have been, on our calculation, some 300,000 more immigrants come into this country than have done if we had had no legislation. Now, that would have created impossible social and economic problems. The last figure I saw, which was based on about 610 results, was a 3.6% swing to Labour, and that has, in fact, produced a Labour majority only just. I think Paul had aspiration to become Prime Minister. Have you still got those ideas? No, <laughs> not put politicians. It's a hard life, you see. It's a hard day's grind. There are a few whispers in the audience, Lara, people saying it was 1964. Why does Keir Starmer hope it's 1964? Well, it's interesting uh, that he mentioned it in his speech. He mentioned it along with uh, the 1945 and 1997 victories that, of course, you know, are, are well known in Labour uh, in Labour history. But 1964, uh, on the surface, appears to bear very similar resemblance. It was the slogan of 13 wasted years uh, of Conservative rule. There was the kind of ready, steady go. Um, you had Harold Wilson facing off uh, against Alec Douglas Hume, who was this figure, this kind of relic of an aristocratic age path that he managed to uh, posit him at. But the key thing being, you know, he's out of touch, he doesn't understand, etc. Um, and in this instance, you know, the, the thing we associate most with this campaign is, of course, the white heat 
uh, speech, the, you know, facing forward to technology, and that was something that Keir wanted to bring out from that. Uh, the reason it's a slightly difficult comparison is, of course, that he doesn't want a big enough majority to stay in power very long and has to go back to the country not that long after. And that's actually one of the reasons why it might be a more interesting analogy, because it yeah. shows, I mean, some people do talk about this in Labour, and I think Patrick's written about this in one of his columns before, you know, what happens if there isn't a majority or there is the possibility that you may have to go back to the public again. And that's, I think, another reason why it's quite an interesting example of, of that. In fact, Patrick McGowan, you spotted when we were in the merch stand uh, at Labour Party conference this week just how seriously they're taking the 64 comparison. Yeah, if you uh, had bought a Labour Party T-shirt from the uh, merch stall at Labour Party conference, the font was exactly the same as that used in Harold Wilson's campaign in 1964. <laughs> and the fact I can recognise that font off the top of my head shows you just how much it is I get out. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what the two party leaders... Um, uh, they're, they're the elections that they, they hope might be emulated next year. Obviously very different outcomes. Patrick, without giving anything else away, what year are you going to be offering up to us? Well, Aisha already stole, stole a march on me by making an ageist joke uh, about the audience uh, and when they might have first voted. Uh, so I'm, I'm not going to give anything away. A long time ago. That's what you call teasing. Right, up next then, Patrick Maguire on an election a long time ago, which might give us some clue uh, as to what might happen uh, next year. It's Matt Trolley coming to you live from the Cheltenham Literature Festival. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. We're taking a trip down memory lane uh, to see uh, what we can learn about the coming election from elections past. We've looked at 1997, 2010, 1992, 1964, and now, here's a clue to the choice of Patrick Maguire. of audio from this year that we could find because there were no recordings of any general election at that point. Patrick, what year are we going back to? I've actually chosen a general election that is so old it predates the invention uh, of domestic radio uh, and that was the number one song in 1906 uh, which I... <laughs> We've got some 1906 voters in the house. 
I know that was on the tip of everyone's tongue. You know, you come and hear 1997, 1992, and you think, when is someone going to start talking about 1906? But it sounds eccentric, but once I explain it, I think I might convince you. So are you saying, Patrick, that most women won't vote in the election that's coming? <laughs> well, in his dreams... People do tell me that neither Rishi Sunak nor Keir Starmer are particularly inspiring, so I don't see why they have <laughs> much reason to. Firstly, to understand 1906, if your patient hasn't worn thin already, we've got to go back briefly to 1900. Uh, <laughs> now, what happened in 1900? The Tories won a 134 uh, seat majority over the Liberals, and it was basically a single-issue election. They called it the Khaki election. And that was because the Boer War looked like it had just finished. There was a great wave of patriotic fervour and the Marcus of Salisbury was returned with a massive landslide. People were saying, well, look, the Conservatives are never going to lose again. This is a one-party state. But in the intervening six-year Parliament, several things happened. One, the war dragged on a little bit longer than people were expecting. Uh, so the promise of the election, a great sort of victory election, was not fulfilled. Uh, didn't end until 1902. Then, in 1903, a maverick uh, by the name of Joe Chamberlain, who has been agitating for the Conservative Party uh, to adopt uh, protectionist trade policies, been thinking deeply about the Conservatives' relationship with the rest of the world, uh, he leaves the Conservatives. He's a, such a, you know, he's a dominant figure in British politics. They used to call him the man that made the weather he was basically the Mafia Don who ruled Birmingham as well. So he's a huge figure, creates huge disruption in the Conservative Party, which is then fundamentally split on its fundamental economic policy. Do they back free trade or Chamberlain's preferred system of imperial preference? So by 1906, the Tory party is hopelessly divided on the fundamentals of what it should be for, and the Liberals uh, can mount a campaign that paints them as uh, people who want to encost the... Uh, increase the cost of living. They talk about the big lib liberal loaf and the little Tory loaf. Uh, and they also uh, can run on a campaign uh, that promises sort of more social protections uh, and the sort of bedrock of what we today call the welfare state. The very first sort of germs of the welfare state were sown uh, in that election. So then what happens? Just checking my uh, notes. The Liberals won a 125-seat majority and the Tories fall to 156 that's the lowest seat total the Tories have won in any election ever. Now, why do I make this comparison? Well, because 2019, that is basically... John might dispute this, but it is basically a single-issue election in that Boris Johnson asked for a mandate to break the parliament, parliamentary logjam to get Brexit done. Or if you want to spin it another way, the question is, do you want Jeremy Corbyn as your Prime Minister? And the public answers with a resounding no. Either way, that's a single-issue election. I remember in 2019-2020 having conversations with Labour MPs with their heads in their hands saying, we will literally never win again. We're dead. We won, you know, barely 200 MPs in this parliament. You know, I remember having one conversation with a, with a Labour person in which we discussed seriously, if you were left-wing on economics now, should you join the Conservative Party and try and shape their policy from the inside? So there was a real feeling that Labour were completely done. But as we've seen over the past four years... The big promises that Boris Johnson made in 2019 haven't been fulfilled, and the Tory party now finds itself in a very similar place to it find itself in 1906, namely, split fundamentally on its very purpose and overshadowed by some 
big personalities who've had very, very public disagreements with the course of its policy. So I think uh, that this, actually, obscure that it is, could be a good comparison. And, by the way, I'm not alone. I don't know how many of you remember Emily Thornberry's short-lived uh, run for the <laughs> Labour leadership in 2020. Uh, it was a real classic. This is the very comparison she made as well. So, you know, not just me. If you have an issue with that, take it up with, uh, <laughs> with Emily Thornbury, Casey. Thank mm-hmm. you. I mean, well done, Patrick O'Dwyer. Anyone else want to come in on the 1906 election? Well, I, I mean, well, <laughs> I'm surprised that John's got something to say. I mean, I think... Mom was on the BBC that night. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although you couldn't um, hear him, there was just a piano playing in the background. <laughs> That's why there's no recording. Um, Patrick, I mean, I think there's important truth in what you're saying in that um, it's also true after the 1992 election, a lot of people were saying, are we heading towards a Japanese-style one-party state, etc., etc.? But, of course, the crucial, the crucial lesson, arguably, is, and the potential analogy is that, arguably, the Conservatives lost in 1906 mm. through their mistakes and through their internal divisions... And I think, you know, the honest truth is that probably what, where we are at now is far more to do with the mistakes made by this government rather than really anything to, that Labour have done, albeit Labour at least did enough, to be able to profit uh, uh, from those mistakes. The other thing, of course, is interesting about it, which in a sense argues why, you know, 2019 is an interesting backdrop, is that whole debate inside the Conservative Party about whether it's pro or anti-EU, has all sorts of echoes of the debate about imperial preference, both with Joseph Chamberlain and then, of course, again inside the 1920s. And for a long time, there was a debate about whether or not actually this issue would indeed split the Conservative Party again. In the event, it didn't, not least because... And here we have to give... Sorry, we do now have to give tribute to Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson's great success was A, getting his party pretty much all... Either they were on side with him in leaving the European Union or they were chucked out. And then B, crucially, he got the Leave electorate, 80% of them, to vote for the Conservatives and thereby was able to get his 80-seat majority. But you're right, it was very much a uh, one-issue election. That issue hasn't disappeared, but it clearly isn't going to have the same prominence that it did for... Aisha, before I do mine... Um just to pick up on John said, I think the I think the 2019 thing is really really interesting. Um, Paula Sturridge, who's a, a great sort of uh, political sort of academic, wrote a study about the, the 2019, and they came up sort of with BBC, not the BBC, but they said it's a combination of Brexit, Boris, and Corbyn. And I think to just build on what John said about Boris Johnson, slightly sticks in my craw to say it. But he also was, at that point, a kind of phenomenal political campaigner. Yeah. There was a kind of political stardust uh, about him. And because it was such a long time coming, <laughs> he'd been plotting and planning, and then, of course, all the, the Brexit kind of stuff, there was an excitement about him that he was quite... Although, I mean, the, uh, John will know this, he was mo- nowhere near as popular no. in the polls. Well, no, he, but because the point was he, it was, he, all could, he, he was, was very popular with Leavers and yes. deeply unpopular with Remainers. So and he was much we, less unpopular than, than Corbyn. Yeah. Yeah. We need to move on because we want to make sure that we can bring in some of our live audience to answer some questions. But as I'm in charge of this debate of what year it is, uh, I've got a choice as well. So this is my uh, prediction of what might happen next year. It is time for you to say to the extremists, we've had enough. For heaven's sake, let's get on with it. 
A month ago, the Conservatives had a working majority. It is manifest that they have not received the mandate they sought. The general election will be held on Thursday, the 10th of October. It will be, of course, the second general election this year. From all the swings of fortune and the polls and the results, we believe that uh, Labour is now set for having a clear overall majority, although it is still a slender one. I'm taking you back to 1974, where a Conservative Prime Minister was beset by industrial action, rising energy prices, uh, demands for uh, huge pay rises from across uh, various sectors. So he decided to go to the country, a court election, who governs Britain? And Britain said, not you, Ted Heath. Uh, but Howard Wilson didn't get a majority. Uh, that was in February 1974. So he fell short of the majority, it was the biggest party. So in the autumn of 1974, we had a second general election. So my prediction is that next year, the, uh, Keir Starmer will fall short of an uh, overall majority. And whether or not it's next year or just into 2025, he'll end in the Lib Dems, will ultimately not want to go into a full-blown coalition. So if he wants to have this decade of renewal he talks about and to, to, to implement the long-term changes, he'll have to go uh, to the country again and... Amongst other people, Brenda from Bristol will be absolutely furious. <laughs> the, crucial, the crucial lesson about 1974, which is uncomfortable for Labour, is that Howard Wilson's ploy of um, going for a second election did not work. Labour only had a majority of three, and when John Stonehouse went for a rather long swim <laughs> off the coast of Florida, they lost that majority. And, by 19, and this, is, this is the uncomfortable bit for Labour. By 1976... Uh, when, of course, the IMF crisis was also on the rise, and there's another financial crisis that the government didn't recover from. Um, by 1976, the Conservatives were ahead in the opinion polls. Uh, they put down a vote of no confidence because they were happy to hold an election because they thought they would win. And at that point, the then minority, again, Labour administration, had to do a deal with the then Liberal Party in order to remain in office. And the truth is that although probably, you know, going back to what I was saying about 2010, I suspect if we do get a hung parliament, we won't get a coalition again, that Labour will endeavour to put a King's speech through and because neither the Liberal Democrats nor the SNP will throw them out, they will survive in the short run. But unless they can get that second election and win, and given the fiscal circumstances, that's not going to be easy, the point that Labour have to worry about is when they're behind in the opinion polls and they have to look to either the Liberal Democrats or the SNP for support. And we all know what the price is. It's either a referendum on PR or a referendum on Scotland. Choose your poison. Aisha. Just on that, I mean, I think in that situation, the Liberal Democrats would support Labour. I, I don't know if the SNP would. That's interesting. Well, which they, famous, which they famously didn't in 79, yeah. which is what caused the... Oh, no, they, well, they didn't in 79 because, because the, the devolution referendum at that previous March had been lost, so therefore the prospects... Of doing, no, I mean, look, I think the SNP would... The SNP would... If, if, if at that point the Labour Party were to accede to holding a second independence referendum, the SNP would help the government... They, but the Labour is... I don't think Labour's going to do that. No, no, but, so but, then, but, 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 that's, why, but that's why Labour potentially face a very hard between a rock and a hard place. They may have to accept that they will go into an election and lose. Yeah, and on that, you've got, this, like, if this is the situation, you've got a very 
troubled leader in Scotland. You know, Hamza Yusuf having a very, very difficult... This is the chance. If he's in that situation, no, I'm not going to help you, Labour. It kind of shores him up in Scotland. Right. Can I just jump in very, very quickly in a single sentence? In 74, uh, Jeremy Thorpe was on every poster up and down the land. The Liberals thought they were going to make a huge breakthrough. They didn't, and that's another warning for the Labour Party. Yeah. If the Liberals, uh, Liberal Democrats now undershoot their high expectations. And if we're looking for Jeremy Thorpe comparisons, every dog in Britain should be worried. <laughs> right, um, let's, let's have a vote. Let's have a vote in here. Uh, put your hands up. So we have the light, lights on here in the, the, uh, the forum here at the Child Militia Festival. Put your hand up if you think we're heading for 1997. Ooh. Oh, gosh. Right, OK. Uh, put your hand up if you think you agree with John Curtis we're heading for 2010. Oh, there's a few more there. <laughs> a few more there. John's bullying of everyone else seems to have paid off. Uh, Laura Spirit had two. Do you think it's going to be like 1992 and a talk the Tories win? Literally no one. A one, person one person there. there. Yeah. One person That's there. Alex Chalk. That is Alex Chalk. <laughs> Tory MP for Cheltenham. Uh, what about... What was, what was your other... 1964. Is it going to be like 1964? A small smattering? A smattering, I think, uh, we'll call that. Anyone with Patrick Maguire in 1906? Yes! Yes. <laughs> because you're all going to be using that to show off to your friends. Uh, and who wants two elections next year? Who thinks it's going to be like 1974? I think John Curtis has got it. It's a hung parliament. Uh, that's where uh, the, the, uh, the rumours go. Oh, yeah, give him a round of applause. questions to the panel and then I get to put questions to one of you when we play the hugely popular class Caddy Gets Number 10 that's next on Times Radio Yay! very good still joined by Ish Hazarika John Curtis Lava Spirit and Patrick Maguire we'll play Caddy Gets Number 10 with somebody here in the audience in a moment but first let's take some questions from the audience and yes question over there if Labour don't win the next election do you think there will be a leadership contest Patrick Maguire. I'd say it depends how badly they lose. I think if Keir Starmer is Prime Minister after the next election, even without a majority, he becomes very difficult to challenge just because of the psychological impact of Keir Starmer becoming uh, the first Labour Prime Minister in 13 years. But I think if they don't win the election, then all bets as to the internal politics of the Labour Party are basically off in that the entire... Uh, four years, the past four years have been predicated on a very particular strategy i.e. the only way we can possibly win an election is by taking inspiration from the tactics we used under New Labour and eradicating the left and saying the left couldn't possibly win I think if that doesn't pay off then the internal politics of the Labour Party could very quickly go to quite a dark and chaotic place. Aisha? Yeah, I, I, I really agree with that and I think you know, everybody is uh, towing the line across the Labour movement from the brothers and sisters in the, in the union movement to, you know, even some of the kind of more left-wing MPs in the, in the socialist campaign group. Everyone's towing the line to get Keir Starmer over the line to, 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 to get a Labour government. But Patrick is right. If, if that doesn't happen... The other thing which is interesting is that the, the leader's office has got a really kind of vice-like grip in terms of you know, keeping everybody to heal and everyone staying on message. It's, it's quite an authoritarian <laughs> party at the moment. So if they don't get across the line, I think all hell is going to break loose. Not just from, like, the Corbynista end of them, but some of the more moderates who behind the scenes will say they wish he was a bit braver, the more soft-left people. There we are. Very good. Right, question over there on the far right, as in the, the room, not the... <laughs> <laughs> what am I doing? Anyway, yes, <laughs> over there impact, if any, will the boundary changes and other changes with the Election Act have 
Very good. John, Curtis, you, of course, bound for changes? Uh, well, I should say that the official quote-unquote estimates of what the result of the 2019 election would be uh, would have been under, under the new boundaries are expected to be released by the three media main media organisations after the Tamworth and Mid-Bedfordshire by-elections next week. But basically, there is a fairly widespread consensus that the boundary review is not going to have a dramatic impact. I mean, Labour Party already on the standard arithmetic need a 12-point majority. Perhaps it's going to be 13, 13 to 14. The principal reason for that, well, there are two. One is that uh, the demography of, uh, the, the, the geography of Britain has changed in that some of um, the country's cities, most notably London, have been gaining population and London is now pretty much a one-party state for Labour. And secondly, when the Conservatives won a lot of those red wall constituencies, they picked up a lot of constituencies which have relatively small electorates, uh, some of which are, uh, uh, those constituencies are now disappearing. So therefore, uh, the effect of the boundary review in terms of uh, equivalising the size of electorates isn't, has the same partisan impact as it would ironically have been if either of the two attempts at a boundary review had been implemented, but neither of which in the end was. Very good. I think we've got time for one more question. Uh, is there a hand up there? No. Oh, yes, down here. Great. As far away from the microphones as possible. Look, oh, excellent. Well done. You just that question, but if, if, if Keir does, and I'm being proud, I think if Keir does lose, I think you might hold back into view King of the North, Andy Burnham. Ah, yeah. yes, of course. It's Cagoule on. And <laughs> he hates London and Westminster so much. Why would he want to go back there? Uh, very good. Yes, there, question down here. Given, given the effect on the popularity of the Lib Dems last time they went in a co into a coalition, do, does anyone think they would actually dare do it again? Lava? Um, yeah, some people do. <laughs> um, some people do. The case being, like John says, that if they have red lines uh, on electoral reform, for example, but also on housing, uh, and they can be seen to leverage, you know, as we, as Nick Clegg made the case for last time, you know, better in the tent, better to be able to do that. Uh, I think institutional memory in that sense is, is, uh, is quite short, and there is a case that many of them will, might have in the situation yeah. where they're looking at the keys of Downing Street and thinking even if we have, you know, a few seats at the table, that might be worth it. There are genuinely people that think that. Very good. Right, we're going to have to leave it there, I'm afraid, because uh, you've asked the questions, now you've got to answer them. It's time for this. Yes, 10 questions loosely connected to 10 cabinet jobs. The more questions you get right, the better job you get. Take your place alongside our listeners and guests. If you make it all the way to number 10 and get that right, you'll cross the threshold to become our show's Prime Minister. This is how our cabinet currently looks. John the Solicitor is Minister Without Portfolio. David the part-time voiceover artist is Culture Secretary. Miriam Gonzalez-Durantes, the trade lawyer, Nick Clegg's wife, is Environment Secretary. Vicky from the charity Mind is Transport Secretary. Jennifer Kelly from Chester Zoo is Education Secretary. Roger Bailiff, the grandfather from Hampshire, is Health Secretary. Mark, the Proposals Manager from Sunny Barnes, is Home Secretary. Count Binface is Foreign Secretary. Rosanna Lockwood from Talk TV is Chancellor and Times Radio's very own James Hansen is still our show's Prime Minister. So, who is today's backbencher here in Cheltenham looking for promotion? Who is there? Hello? Hello? Uh, Matthew. Matthew. Is that your name or are you just calling me what my gran calls me? That's when my I... name as well. <laughs> I've been naughty. You are called Matthew? Yes. What do you do, Matthew? Uh, I work in insurance. Great. <laughs> That sounds really good. Should you not be at work? You've got a job, though, which is good, because most, uh, most of my listeners are retired, so thank you for coming out. Uh, any particular cabinet job you've got your eye on, Matthew? Um, probably sport. Sport. So you only need to get two right for that, so that's very, 
very wise. Come on then, let's do this. Let's play. Can you get to number 10? Here you go. Question number one, to become Minister Without Portfolio, complete this well-known phrase, don't judge a book by its... Cover. <laughs> That's the right answer. I've, I forgot to bring my bell, so the good people of Cheltenham have bought me an antique-looking bell, which is fabulous, apart from the terrible noise it makes. Oh, there we go. Very good. Question two, for culture, media and sport, which book by Emily Bronte became a smash hit for Kate Bush? Weathering Heights. You're allowed to clap. Question three. Question three for Environment, Food and Royal Affairs. Beatrix Potter's stories about Peter Rabbit and his friends are linked with which part of the country? Is it the Lake District or the Peak District? Peak District. <laughs> I don't think I need to tell you, Matthew. That... That was the wrong answer, I'm afraid. <laughs> so you said you wanted to get culture, media and sports, and you've quite brilliantly ended up with <coughs> culture, media and sport by only getting two uh, questions right. Round of applause for Matthew. Yeah. Very good. Well, well done, everyone. Uh, thank you to my uh, panel, to Aisha Azarika, to John Curtis, to Lara Spear and Patrick Maguire. Aisha, what can people look forward to your show this weekend? Uh, lots of uh, good things. I'll be on uh, air tomorrow from uh, four till seven and Sunday. We'll be doing uh, a look back at the Labour conference. We'll be looking ahead at the SNP conference as well and bringing you all the latest developments on the unfolding situation in the Middle East. Very good. Well, that's, uh, that's all we've got time for, for our show, at least, here in, uh, here in Cheltenham. Uh, don't forget to subscribe to The Times. Tell your friends about Times Radio uh, as well. Uh, Patrick McGuire and I are going to go and sign some books now. Um, whether you like it or not, you're not allowed to leave until you've bought several copies uh, of the book. Uh, massive thank you to all the team who've uh, put us on air and made sure that everything works. Uh, but also massive thank you to you. Thank you so much for coming uh, and supporting the, the Cheltenham Literature Festival for all the work they do uh, here as well. A round of applause for our panel, please. And that's all we've got time for on today's episode of the podcast. Many thanks to all of our guests at uh, Cheltenham and all the team who made it happen in front of uh, such a brilliant audience. Don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. And if you're a Time subscriber, you can now get an extra bonus episode every weekend. Just link up your Apple account to your Time subscription. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.